Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. For those of you who don't know me, I am the Director of Marketing here at Ave Maria Radio, so basically everything that you see on social media, plus a lot of what we're doing on the website and our digital platforms, I'm coordinating. So check out what we're doing here. I'm also the host of Unveiling the Covenants, a program on sacred scripture here at Ave Maria Radio. We've got an intriguing lineup today, and we're going to be talking about the theme of philosophy as it pertains to the theological revelation that we have received here in the Catholic Church. We often make the mistake of assuming that, and, and this is a common problem for many of us who profess a faith, and that is that the faith has to stand antithetically to natural sciences and even sometimes even the philosophical sciences. Coming from a Pentecostal Protestant background, I was constantly told that there really is no room for some kind of an intellectual tradition within Christianity. And the fact of the matter is that's completely not true. The Catholic faith and its entire enterprise of theology is the effort, or at the very least, the work of faith-seeking understanding. And we call this the auditus fide. And this is necessary for any of us who profess any form of Christian truth. And I'll prove this to you. When we say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can't begin to understand at some level of human apprehension, what those words mean, unless we have, first and foremost, some kind of a philosophical system within which we can appeal to a rational understanding. Now, mind you, we're never going to be able to comprehend the divine essence, but at the very least, we'll be able to speak truth for truth's sake pertaining to the triune God. So in order to express the faith as clearly as possible, as early as the Gospels, into the New Testament authors and the early church fathers, they all made use of careful philosophical language in order to correctly signify and explicate what Christianity held to be true. The deposit of faith was passed down, utilizing philosophy and philosophical systems as a means of bolstering and greater explicating the truths that were already held. I want to invite all of us to think about that. We're going to dive deeper into the role of philosophy and right reason in our Christian faith. Let's take a look at the headlines for now. Thanks, Marcus. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Wednesday, November 15th, it's the Feast of St. Albert the Great. Today's news brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. At their fall meeting, the U.S. bishops approving an introductory note to give voting guidance to Catholics, which includes an emphasis that abortion is the preeminent priority for the Catholic voter. The note was approved by a vote of 225 to 11, with seven bishops abstaining. Matthew Monson joins us from Baltimore right after this news break. Governor Mike DeWine is ordering flags lowered at the state capitol in honor of those killed in the devastating crash on I-70 yesterday morning. Six people are dead and 18 more are injured. Jennifer Homedy, chair of the National Transportation Safety Board, confirming the news Tuesday night. Our hearts go out to you. 
for those who lost loved ones, uh, our deepest condolences. And uh, for others that were injured, just know that uh, we are uh, praying for a full recovery. The crash happening Tuesday morning on Interstate 70 when the bus was rear-ended by a semi-truck east of Columbus. President Biden is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in San Francisco. Biden is seeking to stabilize ties with Beijing as the relationships between the two countries have hit a low point. The two leaders are expected to discuss the war in the Middle East and Ukraine while normalizing communication channels and cracking down on the flow of fentanyl in the U.S. And West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he's open to a presidential run. The Democrat announcing last week that he will not seek re-election, possibly throwing the balance of power in the Senate up for grabs. Manchin telling NBC News he wants to unite the center of the country. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Today, the feast day of St. Albert the Great, Albertus Magnus. We'll be talking about his contribution to the faith and this great synthesis of faith and reason during medieval scholastic theology in the next segment and later on in the program. For today, we're going to be talking about what the United, or at least right now, we're going to be talking about what the USCCB is doing, what they're talking about, because the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops met today for their fall, their annual fall plenary assembly in Baltimore. And they gathered for a morning of prayer, reflection, confession, and they talked about some very key issues, one of which you just heard about in the news. Matthew Bunsen joined us from Baltimore. He is there right now. He is the vice president and editorial director of EWTN News and a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's no stranger to this program. He frequently guest hosts for Al and is the author or co-author of more than 50 books. You can follow him on Twitter at at Matt Bunsen, and he also hosts Register Radio, which airs Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 11 a.m. on Ave Maria Radio. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Greetings uh, from Baltimore. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, it, it, So, eyes and ears on the ground, uh, what are things like? I, I took a look at the homily that was delivered by, uh, gosh, Archbishop uh, Boglio, was it? And yeah, uh, it, Bolio, yeah, the president of the conference. Exactly, and and it was it was rousing. It was it was, it it, it was really heartfelt. So uh, eyes and ears on the ground. What's what's the feel like during this uh, this fall annual plenary assembly? Yeah, well, today is the second of the two days that the, they have open sessions. Uh, on Monday, they kicked off with the closed door sessions, and then tomorrow they're back in closed door sessions uh, to continue their discussions. Clearly, uh, if the goal was to use these closed-door sessions to solve and, and decide things before they had uh, the potentially rancorous conversations in public, it worked, because uh, I think tranquil uh, would be one way of putting it. Uh, there's a lot of agreement, uh, but they actually accomplished quite a bit over the last uh, two days of the public sessions, uh, contrary to some of the things that we've been hearing in the press. Uh, the big ticket item, as uh, was noted uh, right at the top of this hour, was uh, the approval that they gave to a modified uh, version of forming consciences for faithful citizenship, which mm-hmm. is their key document for uh, elections and, and helping Catholics to form their consciences before they vote. So we we understand that an introductory note was approved, and a lot That's of it right. had hinged upon particular language that it's it's no... It, we're not strangers to 
the debate on that particular sentence. So, you know, <laughs> shed some light on it because this has been an ongoing saga. And yet we're, I'm really glad to hear that our, our fathers in the faith are so steadfast in this fight for the lives of the unborn. Well, you're you're absolutely correct that uh, in previous years, I think especially in 2019 and the run-up to the 2020 election, there was a, a lot of contentious discussion on the floor of the bishops' meeting on this document, in particular, the use of the that term uh, that abortion remains a preeminent priority or issue for our times. Uh, there were several bishops, and there still are several bishops, who feel that that should be deprioritized, uh, that there should be other issues, uh, in their view, uh, that should uh, take precedence. Uh, the bishops here, uh, I think, Partly for two reasons. I think first, it's a little late in the day to be redrafting everything mm-hmm. uh, in terms of a document like this. Uh, the other is that I think looking a year and a half now post Dobbs, post Roe, uh, they recognize as we are seeing state by state that abortion remains such a preeminent a priority. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, they did not touch on other key issues, like, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Um, Issues of euthanasia, uh, they've mentioned gun violence, terrorism, the death penalty, human trafficking, and uh, the crisis of families around the world, racism, migration, right, and right. Uh, the care for a common home. Mm-hmm. But there was an obvious desire uh, to have this document out there. Uh, and the vast majority of bishops, by a vote of 225 to only 11, uh, voted to push ahead with this new introduction. Uh, and then some support materials to go along with it, but leaving the, the rest of the document completely intact. Matthew, I want to sidestep the document proper and to talk about the Church's official yeah. teachings on the moral theology of this. It's often neglected, whether from the pulpit or in basic Catholic parlance, but the fact of the matter is there is a proportionate hierarchy of moral goods. This is a key part of the entire Catholic moral and social doctrine. And quali- uh, dignity of life issues, which means the right to life, always trumps quality of life issues. And if we don't adhere to honoring the dignity of life from uh, conception to natural death, then quality of life really won't ensue. We've seen this in civilizations that have risen and fallen throughout human history. So why is this still a debate? Well, it's a debate in part because uh, there are those who aren't, they would argue that they're not trying to de-emphasize the importance of abortion, but they see this within a a longer list. In some ways, we can see this, the return of uh, the seamless garment argument. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and we, we saw that back in the 1970s and 80s, uh, in which abortion is one of a series of issues that needs to be dealt with. They, they cloak this under uh, what some claim, at least, is Pope Francis's greater emphasis on certain issues. Anyone who knows Pope Francis knows that he has given some of the most stark and vivid uh, condemnations of abortion uh, in modern years, uh, referring to abortion as hiring a hitman, uh, that sort of thing, right. uh, and really placing abortion within his, his concern for a throwaway culture. But you're also right that this document uh, goes back to those priorities of the, the threats to the dignity of the human person. Abortion, of course, is an intrinsic evil. Uh, that uh, there can be no negotiation on this. Right. Uh, and it, it therefore, because it is a direct threat to the most vulnerable and voiceless, 
uh, and that in a country in which we have had still a million lives lost from abortion, obviously this is a grave threat to the life and dignity of the human person in exactly the same way that, that euthanasia is considered. Other areas where we have what are called prudential judgments, which include things like the death penalty, uh, human trafficking, uh, and how we deal with matters of economics, mm-hmm. fall under a, a different approach. And yep. there are different approaches we can take to that. But abortion in particular uh, is one that is an intrinsic evil and therefore has a higher priority. And therein lies the problem. It's all too common to hear Catholics say, I've come to realize that abortion is just one issue amongst many when when it comes to making my voting decision. And in a very low sense, sure, one can make that argument. But the fact of the matter is, as, as I mentioned earlier in the proportion hierarchy of moral goods, this is a direct threat to the life of the most innocent. And we have an obligation to fight for the eradication of this evil. So that's right. So I want to uh, ask you then, uh, Bishop Robert McElroy. He, he, he brought up the contention that calling abortion a preeminent issue is at least discordant with the Pope's teachings. Nowhere in the Holy Father's words or in his writings does it ever demonstrate that he thinks abortion is less of an issue compared to anything else. So uh, just help shed some light on on where Bishop McElroy is coming from with this. Well, this is uh, the comments you're mentioning, uh, and, and he's now, uh, notably since he made those comments, has become a cardinal uh, under Pope Francis. Uh, so that brings its own uh, additional scrutiny uh, for his comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, having a back and forth back in 2019, I think it was, uh, with uh, Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, who at the time was vice president, and really overseeing much of the drafting of this. And they had this back and forth over it. It really comes down to an interpretation of... Pope Francis, mm-hmm. and what Pope Francis said about abortion relative to other topics. And this is an argument that's not going to go away. I think one of the, the lessons coming out of the discussion today is that, uh, let's just say that I think there is a, a group of bishops here uh, who have chosen to keep their powder dry, so to speak. They know that the major changes to this document aren't going to be possible in the time frame we have. Mm-hmm. So they are looking at a, a push for a pretty significant redraft, which the bishops as a body may decide to do down the road. And I think that's where they're going to try to stake out ground okay. uh, in the coming years. So this is a fight that's not really going away anytime soon. Right. So this not only is this a fight that's not going away anytime soon, as the faithful, we ought to pray and, and well, stand steadfast to everything that our, first of all, the deposit of faith, but also what our Holy Fathers want to hand down in accordance with the deposit of faith. So from there, I mean, it seems like Chapu, amongst others, they stood up, they made statements like, well, I, I don't think that's true. It's uh, To say that right. this is discordant with the Holy Father's teachings is flat, flatly untrue. It isn't true. And apparently the vast majority of bishops applauded that. So it would seem that there is some kind of a consensus here that they see the gravitas of the situation, that this is one of the at least, if not the preeminent life evil of our time? Well, certainly this year, uh, a vast, vast majority, only 11 votes against uh, this new introduction to this document, against 225 to 11, tells you something, that there was a coalescing of desire. This is the document. Let's not uh, tinker with it. Let's not make major changes. Let's go with this new introduction, which I think uh, is very eloquently written. The bishops 
go to some pains to stress that they're not telling who to vote for or who mm-hmm. to vote against. But these are tools. And I think looking at the landscape politically that we have right now, they see this as an important moment. Just to reiterate this, what they're going to do down the road, uh, I think they will leave for another day. But for yeah. now, this is the document. In a similar way, we saw presentations on implementation of an important document that didn't get a lot of play, and that is on Asian Pacific Island Catholics, mm. the fastest growing minority group in the country. And their pastoral care is, is a source of grave concern to a lot of bishops who see this uh, as because this is so growing, because of their, their growing importance uh, to the Church in the United States, uh, that we need to have this pastoral care. And I also want to note that today is a feast day of St. Albert the Great, mm-hmm. a brilliant doctor of the Church, that the bishops, uh, by I think with only two votes against, can't imagine why they were voting against it, uh, actually supported the request of the Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, asking Pope Francis to name St. John Henry Newman the yep. Doctor of the Church. Exactly. And he is hailed on the floor, uh, in particular by Bishop Robert Barron, uh, as somebody who could bring together both wings, so to speak, of the Church in the United States, because there is something in Newman for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think Newman, as a convert, as somebody who was so articulate in understanding the importance of the Catholic faith, the beauty of the Catholic faith in modern culture, has a lot to offer us today. And there's the eminence of his teaching. So there's uh, this should be interesting to see if Pope Francis uh, takes these recommendations, as he has in the past. Uh, for two other doctors of the Church, John of Avila and Irenaeus of Lyon. Right. So we'll have, that's something we're going to be able to track over the next years. Well, that's fantastic, Matthew. And all of this gives us a lot of hope. Let's continue to pray for our holy, uh, our fathers, our fathers of the faith, as they continue in their fall assembly. We've been talking to Dr. Matthew Bunsen, Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Sixty seconds with Father Mitch Pacwa. Within the people of life and the people for life, that's who we are. The people of life and the people for life. Part of our self-identity. The family has a decisive responsibility. This responsibility flows from its very nature as a community of life and love, founded upon marriage and from its mission to guard, reveal, and communicate love. The family and marriage has a mission to guard love, to protect it from false forms of love, from false uses of people, using people and abusing them. It also is to reveal love and communicate love. This is part of the family's and marriage's purpose. You reveal love to the world. You know, people say, oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. That's baloney. This is you saying to the public, I'm loving my wife and my husband and my children till death do us part. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. What is truth? Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, not realizing that he was looking at truth. Jesus Christ is the truth and the source of all truth. The Catholic Catechism states that man tends by nature toward the truth and that he is obliged to honor and bear witness to it. Thomas Aquinas asserts, men could not live together if there were not mutual confidence that they were being truthful with one another. Truth entails both honesty and discretion between what ought to be expressed and what ought to be kept secret. Jesus told Pilate that he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
Thus, the Catechism states, in situations that require witness to the truth of Jesus, a Christian must profess it without equivocation, even at the sacrifice of his own life. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He is honored by the Church as a saint with the title of the Angelic Doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the Church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. Today we celebrate the Feast of Albertus Magnus, also known as St. Albert the Great, the great doctor of faith and reason. He's the patron saint of scientists, philosophers, and students, because he always sought to know more. He also always sought to synthesize the great mysteries of the faith with the natural sciences. He used reason to seek a deeper knowledge of God. We talk more about the integration of faith and reason with Doug Kreese. Dr. Douglas Kreese is professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University. He's a passionate advocate of carefully reading the great books of political philosophy with a focus on Plato, Augustine, Aquinas, Tocqueville, and others. He is the author of Two Wings, Integrating Faith and Reason, which we will be talking about today. Doug, how are we doing? We're doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I must say, I I read your book and it I, I find it beautiful. It it's a wonderful, approachable synthesis to the development of philosophical thought from well, I, I at the very least from the origins of Socratic and pre-Socratic thought to what we have in modernity right now. So I, I really want to commend you on a, on a book very well written. Well, thank you. We tried to make it very accessible. Uh, the book was written not only by myself, but my uh, colleague at Gonzaga, who's since retired, Brian Clayton, mm-hmm. and uh, making it accessible and attractive to people who are just getting into this area was one of the main uh, 
goals of of writing the book. So I'm very pleased to hear that you found it that way. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I must I must say that's perhaps one of the things that startled me about the, uh, about the premise that you utilize because for one might call some of us, you know, philosophical geeks or nerds or whatever, and the temptation would be to want to be so esoteric in how we compose our our prose that uh, you know, we can get lost in the weeds and, and it's the average layperson who's got no idea what we're talking about. And you can tell that you took great pains to make sure that anyone who reads this will have at least an apprehension of what's going on. Well, um, you know, our model uh, for this uh, was C.S. Lewis himself. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, undoubtedly, the... Uh, uh, most successful, I think, at least in the English language, the most successful apologist, Christian apologist of our age. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I would uh, consciously ask myself, now, how would Lewis get this point across? And, well, <laughs> we're not we're not C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, but um, that was the inspiration. Um, and uh, he had a, a beautiful way of communicating things through analogies and examples and so forth. And um, we've tried to um, to imitate him as best we could mm-hmm. um, in doing this. So you call the book Two Wings for the obvious reason that you are borrowing from John Paul II's fetus at Ratio. And faith and reason are the two wings through which man ascends to God. And you start your reflection on Socrates, but you also make the juxtaposition here between rationalism and fideism. So let's talk about those two before we dive into some of the meat of what you address in the book. Okay, sure. Um, so um, rationalism is the view that all of the um, teachings of the faith can be demonstrated by reason, that they can be proven to natural reason. And, uh, of course, this was never the claim of uh, Christianity. Uh, Christ seems to ask for faith, uh, asks for trust, asks for us to to have confidence in him. And, uh, yes, now, uh, there are uh, claims that are made, truth claims, but it's never suggested that uh, uh, what faith is all about is uh, rationally demonstrating a set of propositions. Mm-hmm. Fideism is the view that nothing about faith can be uh, is open to rational inquiry. You just have to believe without any reason uh, at all. And so uh, what we're trying to do in the book is to show that, well, Okay, some things can be, uh, uh, some aspects of faith are uh, demonstrable, are, can be proven, uh, are completely uh, open to rational inquiry. Uh, others, we, uh, we can ask some questions and uh, make some arguments, but they're not demonstrations. Right, and uh, and so uh, there are aspects of faith that go beyond rational uh, comprehension, mm-hmm. and so what we try to do, I mean, this is the integrative approach that uh, uh, both are possible and uh, they're consistent with each other, but they're not the same. 
Uh, so we have two wings. We have a, a reason is one wing, faith is another wing, and you need two wings to fly. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're trying to do in the book. Reading through the whole book, I'm constantly reminded of the Anselmian premise, Fides Quarens Intellectum. The, the faith of Christianity is that of faith seeking reason, seeking understanding. And that, again, is echoed in a different way by Augustine, who says, Credo ut intelligent. I believe that I may understand, not, not the other way around. And then you think about St. Thomas Aquinas, who so famously wrote Gratia, non tollit naturam sit perficit, right? It, it, grace doesn't destroy nature, it perfects it. It would appear that the entire Christian narrative has been about God utilizing that which he's already created us to do and bringing it to some kind of true perfection, elevating the intellect and will to contemplate divine mysteries that he has handed down to us. So he doesn't want to do away with humanity and human capacities. Instead, he wants to elevate that. That That's one of the ways in which we can understand becoming partakers of the divine image, wouldn't you say? Oh, oh sure, absolutely. And I'd just add, we make this point in the book that uh, you're talking about Anselm, uh, uh, I believe that I may understand, or Augustine saying uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the same thing at mm-hmm. certain times. We're familiar with this in, in a lot of ways. Um, um, there are things like, um, um, oh, the Pythagorean theorem itself. Okay? Right. When we first learned the Pythagorean theorem, we probably didn't understand it. We didn't have the proof from it, but it was laid out there for us, and uh, we started working with it. We believed that it was true, right, long before we understood why it was mm-hmm. true. And there are a lot of things uh, about that. And Well, it seems that this is the case. I wonder if there's a reason that would show that or prove that. Now, uh, so we don't claim in the book that everything can be proven, but that's a very common way that faith and reason go together. Mm -hmm. We begin by accepting something on the basis of authority. We ask questions of it, and sometimes we discover that, in fact, there are demonstrations of it or proofs. Uh, So, I mean, that's just a very uh, good way of, of... of how of explaining how we come to learn really almost uh, many things right. uh, uh, <laughs> so you you make you make sure you highlight in the book that on the one hand you've got the great champion of rationalism Clifford and on the other hand you've got you've got the other great champion of fideism Kierkegaard and the two deliberately in their own philosophical system stand diametrically opposed to each other. And the Catholic faith, however, stands and says, no, this truly is a both-and, but it has to be done within the spectrum of that which is objectively true. We apprehend that we may reason through, that we may judge, that we may then reason. There's this trifold sequence, if you will, of the human intellect coming to receive that it may understand, know, and proclaim and live truth. Absolutely. So both faith and reason make, we would call them in philosophy perhaps, truth claims. Mm -hmm. They make claims about what is true. Philosophy does this on the basis of its, its rational powers. Faith does this by accepting divine revelation. Mm -hmm. But 
both of these have to come together. Okay, uh, I mean, truth is always consistent with truth. Um, they, the the claims of both faith and reason, if they're true, they have to be consistent with each other. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a coherent uh, system uh, uh, whereby these go together. Right. And if you veer off into one side, oh, it's just about believing, you wind up in fideism. If you veer off to the other side, oh no, only the only way to find truth is through our rational capacities. Then we would come up with rationalism, mm-hmm. and and they go they go together, and they actually support one another. And and even in what you just said, your entire book presupposes a certain grounding in the acceptance of the first principles of of philosophy, such as logic. For example, what what you just said is an application of the first principle of non-contradiction, that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. So in other words, when we are doing this inquiry, faith and reason, we have an obligation to understand that truth cannot oppose truth. Two things cannot be equally to, true in the same time and at the same time and in the same respect. Exactly. Uh, that's that's exactly uh, the point that we're trying to make uh, in the book. Okay. Now, in fact, sometimes it happens that in our thinking, our reasoning, and and in our believing, we might come to moments where it seems that faith and reason are opposed that they're not saying the same thing, they're not lining up, they don't seem to be consistent, mm-hmm. okay? And then, you know, this creates questions for us. And you got to go back. you got to, well, let's see, did I do my reasoning correctly? Have I thought, right. uh, is my interpretation of the Scriptures accurate? Um, you, you know, you don't know ahead of time of where you've made a mistake, but you must have made a mistake somewhere if you reach what appears to be a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And and so it, this is a, 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 a process that we want to be self-correcting, too, see, is that it's, uh, if you make a mistake somewhere, there's a chance of fixing it. Right. Uh, if, you're, if you're going uh, faith and reason uh, together. And one would even argue, okay, well, I'm, 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 I want to keep my faith simple. And we're coming up on the end here of this segment, Doug, and, and we're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break. But I want to really talk about how Aquinas understood sacred doctrine, because he wasn't attempting to be a systematic theologian for the sake of it. He had salvation at the forefront of his mind, and he was utilizing the powers of reason to get there. We've been talking to Doug Kreese, who is the author of Two Wings, he is the professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Cresta in the afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. 
The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping! This program is brought to you by the following nonprofit underwriter. Finding health care for yourself and your family can be isolating and confusing. That's why the Catholic Health Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering Christ-centered health sharing for individuals and families, along with new wellness services to help heal and restore your whole person, spirit, mind, and body. Visit cmfcuro.com to find out more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. Connection with Teresa Tomio. A conversation I had several years ago with um, one of our listeners who wrote to me and said she was being challenged by a friend or a cousin or someone regarding the church and various teachings, especially on marriage and abortion and whatnot. And she said, I need the answers and I need them quickly because I want to quiet this person and shut them down. And I wrote her back and I said, I'm not going to give you the answers. I will give you some resources, such as the link to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I said, but you need to look these up and you need to read them over and you need to learn them because this is not going to be the last time that you're going to be challenged or questions about your faith. And what good is it if you're just barking answers to someone and you're not able to explain them charitably? This is a way we all should learn by doing the work ourselves. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Sharing meals as a family isn't just about nourishing our bodies. It's about nourishing our spirits and relationships, too. A large body of research points to the many ways that family meals boost the well-being of kids and parents alike. It can be tough for families to consistently make time to sit down and eat together. But when we do, it's like we're saying to one another, spending time with you is one of the most important parts of my day. In a way, the table that our family gathers around starts to look a little like the altar at church. It becomes a place for practicing gratitude, experiencing sharing, and building communion. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popcheck, but you can call me Family Man. And hey, could you pass the peas? Thanks. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, Visit CatholicCounselors.com. Noon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta, and we're talking in honor of St. Albert the Great about the two wings, faith and reason, and how the integration of faith and reason allows for us to ascend to the contemplation of the Almighty God. We're talking with Dr. Doug 
Kreese, who is the professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University and the author of this book, Two Wings. So, Doug, we were talking earlier about the distinction between the Depositum Fide and Theologia Naturalis, the the distinction between sacred theology as it's revealed, revealed theology, versus natural theology. And I think many people don't even know that there is a thing called natural theology, and that's what metaphysics is. So shed some light on that, and then let's talk about the limitations of natural theology and where sacred theology comes in. Sure. So... Um it is the view of uh, Thomas and his teacher, Albert, uh, that um, hum- human reason can know some truth about God. Now, mm-hmm. it doesn't know everything about God. That God exists, for example, Thomas and Albert before him uh, thought that there were uh, uh, demonstrations of that that could be uh, understood by uh, people who studied philosophy. Now, that God, say, uh, existed as, exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is triune, or that God loves us, perhaps, those are things that maybe um, there are no uh, proofs uh, for from the side of reason, but they are things that are believed through faith. Right. Okay? So they're not inconsistent with each other, but they're not the same. Uh, either. Some are understood through reason, some through faith. Natural theology, to answer your question more directly, is what we're doing when we're using reason to demonstrate those truths of the faith that can be proven. Revealed theology uh, is uh, what we're doing when we uh, accept uh, truths from the scriptures, and then try to reason uh, to further conclusions on the basis of accepting those truths. Mm-hmm. So, for example, of the the latter, I mean, the the Bible does say that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really say how they fit together in uh, uh, in, in one triune nature. Yeah. In, in one triune nature, that's something that it seems that we have to uh, figure out. We accept the starting point from the Scripture, but go from there. And uh, natural theology doesn't employ Scripture at all. Mm -hmm. It it simply uses uh, ungraced, natural human reason. Mm -hmm. Now, that distinction is so crucial, because what we're going to then realize is, on the one hand, natural, as you mentioned earlier, natural theology does in fact have its limitations. If we don't have divine revelation, we understand that God is, but we don't know who God is. But on the other hand, theology reveals to us that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet He is one God. And so the language of metaphysics and philosophy in general allows us to, at the very least, come to an apprehension of unicity in the divine essence and yet procession of persons, two persons from the one godhood of the Father. That, that's right. That, 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 uh, you've stated it very well. So from there, then, let, let's, let's dive a little deeper. You, you talk about this distinction of processions, right? The way, even, even just simply mentioning that Jesus Christ is the Logos, as we find in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1 and the entire Johannine or Johannine, Johannine prologue, 
even something like that already bears this kind of Hellenistic implication that Jesus is the procession of the divine intellect. And whenever the scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit as the, the agape or the caritas, we, we are seeing this kind of procession of the will. So these are some of the, just explain to us a little more, like these are some of the many ways that you highlight how philosophical language helps greater illuminate some of the more mysterious aspects of the deposit of faith. Well, sure. Um, whenever we're talking about these uh, kinds of concepts, we we uh, we employ the language that's available to us, and uh, that means we start to use words like uh, 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 form versus matter and uh, spirit and uh, material mm-hmm. versus immaterial substance and, and accident uh, substance and accident and all of the words that philosophers like to mm-hmm. use. Um, and so um, those words are going to be helpful when we start to do theology. Right. The most probably the place where your listeners would uh, most recognize this is in uh, when we say that the son is consubstantial with the father in the creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what's substance? What's consubstantial? <laughs> right. Those yeah, those were originally philosophical words that the Christian theologians uh, borrowed to to uh, in order to express these uh, things that go beyond philosophy. If I may share a humorous anecdote to prove that point, when I was in Ave Maria University getting my master's in systematic theology, I had a friend with whom I was studying with in the library, and we were going through the prima pas, and Aquinas talks about how as whiteness is accidental to a man. It, that's the English translation, right? And this friend of mine had zero philosophical immersion before coming into the program. And this happened in front of me. He took a look at his took a look at his hand and he looked at me and said, Marcus, this didn't happen by accident. <laughs> well, We've all got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you go on then, as your book progresses, to create these Venn diagrams, which, I, by the way, again, brilliant use of, uh, of kind of this mathematical deductive reasoning to illustrate a lot of the points you're trying to make. And you highlight how, okay, like one of, one of the Venn diagrams, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, we worship the one God. And, but you, you, the Venn diagram demonstrates that the disparities between the religions also find certain common grounds, and there is this little area wherein there's a region that's common to all three. And one one could make the argument that the primary commonality is the notion of the one absolute transcendent God. So just tell us about that. Sure. So, um, yeah, uh, Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam uh, all share... Uh, a view of God that philosophers would refer to as a theistic view. And theism is the view that God is, God does not create the world necessarily, that God didn't have to create the world, or stated sort of precisely in philosophical language that uh, God could exist without the world existing, but the world creation cannot exist mm-hmm. without the existence of God. Mm-hmm. And what this means, the way uh, it, it turns out, in fact, is that 
uh, theist Jews and, uh, excuse me, uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all theists, too, in that they all believe God has a mind mm-hmm. and a will, that God has a reason and a will, and in that sense is a person. And uh, now that's very different than uh, most Eastern religions uh, understand God. Uh, right, right. So, and and so, so that center, what's shared between those three faiths, is a theistic view of God. Right, right. And and I, I love that you point that out. Because I'd love to ask you to juxtapose that then with the the modern watered down version of religion as moralistic therapeutic deism that as Lewis calls it, we don't desire a father in heaven to hold us to account to excellent living, but we desire a kind of senile divinity. We want a grandfather in heaven. So, uh, you know, senile benevolence, he uses the term. So juxtapose that so that everyone understands that to argue for theism is quite different than a lot of people in the public sphere right now who desire a moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, um, so deism or deism is uh, uh, kind of the view that... um, uh, we needed God to make the world in the beginning, uh, and then we don't need to worry about God too much after that. Mm-hmm. That we need a, a sort of first cause to get creation started, uh, but beyond that, it's uh, the idea of God's not relevant. So the the example that's often used for deism is that of a an, uh, a clock. You wind it up and then uh, you can set it and it'll run on its own. Creation is kind of like that. God had to wind up the clock, and then God can leave the creation to run according to its own devices. And and isn't involved, isn't provident for for the world, doesn't Mm -hmm. love the world, isn't present to the world, except at the beginning at the, uh, the original uh, creation of the world. Right. Now, as far as your point about, um, you know, God and therapy and, and so forth, uh, well, Lewis is very good at pointing out that, uh, gosh, if what we wanted was a God we were comfortable with, surely we could have invented a God that's a, a, a lot Easier to get along with than the Christian God. That is to say, the Christian God (laughs) seems to demand things. That's right. Seems to expect things and challenges us and pushes us and tries to get us to become better than we are. And um, uh, yeah, so uh, that's the thing. God surprises you and God challenges you. And um, well, uh, in the end, ultimately, I think that's really the therapeutic God, the God that heals us. Right. But that's not our standard notion of therapy. Right. I mean, he says in The Great Divorce that in the end, it is really the soul who says to God, thy will be done, or God who says to the soul, thy will be done. And I remember reading that thinking, what a slap in the face. But but that's <laughs> that's really the lot that awaits all of us at the final judgment. So you you go on to talk about. I mean, we're really running out of time here. But you go on to talk about some of the three great 
natural proofs for the existence of God. You've got Anselm's ontological argument. You've got Aquinas's five ways, which we find in the Prima Pass, question three. We, you, and you also talk about the Kalam cosmological argument. So just very briefly, tell us about why we ought to use our natural reason to continue to explore and inquire into all we know about the faith. Well, today, uh, it's always been the case, but especially today, it seems we need a more intellectually sophisticated account of the faith. Mm -hmm. And um, because there are so many non-believers and so many challenges to faith, and especially because we're frequently told that uh, science in all its forms, including natural science, is opposed to the faith, Mm -hmm. faith is irrational, and we need to be able to give an account for what we believe. Mm -hmm. And... um, the book tries. It, 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 I, I want to make clear to your listeners: the book is 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 a beginner's book. Mm-hmm. It tries to outline the basics of the questions. So if you're just getting started in this, you can see. Okay, well, here's kind of the lay of the land. These are the questions that are being asked. These are some of the answers that have been offered and uh, what the basic arguments are for these different authors. So so you know where to start if you're looking for a more uh, intellectually sophisticated uh, expression of uh, faith. And so you can, you can encounter a non-belief and um, not have to be concerned about it, or not have to be worried, not, you don't have to be afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you know what to say, and um, you know what the arguments are, and you know that that's truly wonderful because then that echoes the sentiment of First Peter three fifteen: always be ready to make an account to all who call you to question for the hope that is within you. So exactly. I want exactly I want to thank you once again, Doug, for spending time with us today talking about your brilliant book. Been talking to Dr. Douglas Kreese, professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University, passionate advocate for carefully reading the great books, and he is the author, one of the two authors, of Two Wings Integrating Faith and Reason. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Stay tuned as we round off the first hour of today's program. so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. Feeding 5,000 from a boy's five barley loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6, is quite a miracle. Yet the next day, Jesus downplays it in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Likewise, God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the desert was also a great miracle. Yet Jesus similarly downplays it in verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is clearly stating that His Eucharist is greater than both of these amazing miracles, and the Catholic Church absolutely takes Him at His word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, 
This is faithforensics.org. I worked in pro baseball for a long time, and we play on Sundays. And it was an easy excuse. I took the easy out and just didn't go to Mass. Got caught up on that whole selfishness, that whole, you know, um, I can do it all. The times when I was struggling were the times I needed God the most. And now that uh, I've come back and accepted God, my world has completely changed. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. In recent years, several states have been changing their laws on marijuana, either making it completely legal or legal for medical purposes. What do you think is the best policy? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Pull of the Week to share your thoughts. Hey, good afternoon. Marcus Peter here, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon, rounding off the first hour. We've been talking about natural reason being employed in our pursuit of trying to understand God. In theology, we have the language of apophatic language or the via negativa, which is to say, quote unquote, negative things about God. That's to say that God is infinite. God is infallible. And we also have the via positiva, cataphatic language, to say God is love and God is mercy and God is grace and God is fidelity. In all of these things, natural reason is employed for the sake of us being able to express true things about God, that we may know Him, that we may love Him, that we may serve Him and experience the gift of His salvation. Stay tuned for the second hour. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. My name is Marcus Peter, and I'm filling in for Al Cresta today. Al is away in business. We're going to be talking about the intersection of faith and reason in today's entire second hour. We will be talking about... Well, first of all, it's in the spirit of St. Albertus Magnus, St. Albert the Great. And we'll be talking about uh, the book Viewing Philosophy from the Catholic Tradition, because the fact of the matter is the Catholic faith has never been divorced from the reality of utilizing the heights of our capacity of reason. And this has been a hallmark of the entire intellectual tradition of the Catholic faith. In order to express certain truths of the faiths clearly, the magisterium and the work of faithful theologians across the ages have employed language that has come to us from largely anywhere from secular philosophy to the philosophies that are being developed at the time by Christian philosophers. And multiple theologians across the ages. We've got Augustine with his great synthesis of Neoplatonic thought coming from Plotinus largely. You've got St. Thomas Aquinas synthesizing largely the thought of Aristotle, but almost anyone he could get his hands on. And then you've got John Paul II who attempted this work of synthesis with Max Scheller's phenomenology. The fact of the matter is utilizing secular tools of reason for the sake of understanding and expressing the truths of the faith clearly is a hallmark of the Christian intellectual tradition. 
you and I cannot even begin to say words like consubstantial with the Father or transubstantiation without having to understand what does that really mean and how does that work out? What are the quote-unquote mechanics of the application of those words? See, once you and I receive the faith, the auditus fide, we have an obligation to seek understanding for it. This work of seeking understanding, this work of diving deeper, penetrating the mysteries of the faith, that it may become clearer to us and that we may apprehend deeper the saving message of our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ is known as the intellectus fide, this work of understanding. So we're going to be talking about some of the great giants in our faith, St. Anselm, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Albertus Magnus, and the like. Stay tuned, and for now, let's take a look at the headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Wednesday, November 15th. It's the Feast of St. Albert the Great. Today's news is brought to you by Charity Mobile, supporting pro-life and Catholic causes at CharityMobile.com. The USCCB has voted to advance the cause of beatification for servant of God Isaac Thomas Hecker, a 19th century American priest who founded the Missionary Society of St. Paul, today known as the Paulist Fathers. Hecker published the Catholic World Journal and helped Catholics cultivate a deeper spiritual life. Pope Francis will speak at the inauguration of the first Faith Pavilion during the upcoming 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference in the United Arab Emirates. Dozens of faith-based organizations will host the Faith Pavilion in Dubai from December 1st through the 3rd. Meanwhile, the UN Climate Change Conference runs from November 30th through December 12th. A bill that will prevent a government shutdown is headed to the Senate. Yesterday, the House voting in favor of the Republican plan to fund some departments until mid-January and the rest through early February at current spending levels. The stopgap bill has bipartisan support in the Senate. The Israel-Hamas war is raging on. The Israeli military has raided the Gaza Strip's main hospital and said it's a targeted operation against Hamas. The U.S. confirming yesterday that Hamas uses hospitals and tunnels underneath them to hide and hold hostages. Another English pro-lifer is going to court for praying outside an abortion clinic. Adam Smith Connor will be in court Thursday on charges of violating a local buffer zone law. Smith Connor says he was praying for his son, who was aborted 23 years ago. He says he began to understand the reality of abortion after he became a Catholic in 2018. His cause is one of several that have come up before English courts in recent years. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Hey, welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter here, filling in for Al Cresta. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the Director of Marketing, especially Digital Marketing here at Ave Maria Radio, and I'm also the host of Unveiling the Covenants, a program on sacred scripture that's produced here at Ave Maria Radio. The Catholic Church, as I mentioned in the open, has always recognized that philosophy is necessary both to understand the faith as well as to defend it. Philosophy aids us in discovering the rational principles that underlie the intelligible order of reality and the revealed mysteries. James Jacobs joins us with an introduction to philosophy in the Catholic tradition. Dr. James Jacobs is Director of Philosophy Programs, Associate Academic Dean, and Department Chair of Philosophy at Notre Dame Seminary, or Notre Dame Seminary in Louisiana. He's the author of Seat of Wisdom, an Introduction to Philosophy in the Catholic Tradition. James, how are you doing? 
Very good, Marcus. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here with you and uh, share some thoughts about philosophy with you today. Well, the honor is all mine, genuinely, and I read your book with great delight. I must say it, it's a very lucid, systematic presentation of the employing of this handmaiden of theology in the work of theological inquiry. So uh, I just want to ask you, first of all, why, I'm clearly you're a professor of philosophy so and, and at a seminary, so you encountered the need for understanding this rapprochement. But what prompted the penning of this book? Well, there were a series of things that, that caused me to write it. So one of the immediate things was that in my time as teaching, uh, being a philosophy professor, I'm sometimes asked by those uh, who are training deacon candidates to come in and give a very brief introduction to philosophy. So there was one year where they said, can you cover a brief introduction to philosophy in two hours for a deacon candidate? <laughs> and another year they gave me four hours, and, and actually this past year they gave me six weeks, which was nice. But you know, in previous years it was a very short period, and I said, well, there's no way I can cover everything Right. in order uh, to give the deacon candidates everything they, they're going to need to go study theology like the priest candidates do. Right. And so that was one thing, to give somebody who's going into study theology, like deacon candidates, or even lay people who just want to get a master's degree or even a Ph.D. in theology, give them the philosophical background necessary to really understand what's going on in the Catholic theological tradition. Mm -hmm. um, a secondary uh, source of this was the fact that in teaching seminarians, they take ten different philosophy courses over two years, and occasionally somebody would ask something to the effect of, well, is there one book where all this is collected? Right. Because there are very good books on Catholic ethics, or very good books on human nature or metaphysics, and unfortunately, it's very difficult to go to each of those sources every time you want to know something. So a goal here also is to get essentially all of our seminary curriculum into one handbook so that they continually refer back to it and they know exactly what the principles were from earlier courses and how they might be applied in later courses. And one last aspect that inspired me was that um, I had uh, been in seminary in, in, from 89 to 91 myself, and when I discerned out, I went to teach at a Catholic high school, teach religious studies at a Catholic high school. And because I had been an undergraduate philosophy major, they asked me to do their senior year religion course, mm -hmm. uh, which was an introduction to philosophy in the first semester, then applying it to theological questions in the second semester. Mm -hmm. And the problem was is that although I had been a philosophy major, I went to a school that was largely atheistic and, and secular, and so we didn't cover any of the Catholic tradition. Mm. And so in, in the course of teaching, in order to teach that course, I had to kind of teach myself Plato and Aristotle and Augustine right. and Aquinas. So this book, I think, hopefully would also be a helpful resource for those of you who are teaching in high school and want to give your high school students some philosophy, uh, a thing which I think is actually very necessary today because by the time the young man or woman goes to college, they're going to be in a very fiercely secular atmosphere, mm -hmm. and they have to be able to understand how to argue for their faith and understand the philosophical bases for many of these claims, and that it's not just a fideistic, a, a belief on faith alone, right. uh, and to show that there's an intellectual coherence to the worldview that the Church puts forth. So those were the three main reasons why I wanted to write this book, uh, in order to help people 
grasp the philosophical tradition uh, in, in, for their own purposes. James, I might be premature in saying this, but after I, I went through your book cover to cover, and I, I thought it was brilliant. And I genuinely okay. believe that this is going to be, at the very least, a textbook in any teaching of introduction, introduction to systematic philosophy. Because just like you, I'm I'm big on single tomes that will enable the average person to be able to grasp systematically the, the kind of spectrum of this, the science that I'm trying to put forth. And just like you, you know, it, it really doesn't exist to the extent that you've presented it. So I'm, I'm very grateful for it. And, and if it does, I'm, I'm just woefully ignorant of it. Yeah, I think there there have been other introductions um, to to the faith, and there were and, and they have their own things. There was uh, especially back in the fifties and sixties. Uh, there was one by a man named Sullivan, which was good. But it, the big problem with that is that it didn't interact with modern philosophy at all. Mm-hmm. It showed you how the Catholic tradition picked up strings from Plato and strings from Aristotle. Right, right. But it failed to come into conversation with people like David Hume and Immanuel Kant and Friedrich mm-hmm. Nietzsche. And in fact, the, the pastoral situation that we're living in now is a situation that's shaped by those modern thinkers that's right. and the society that they've brought about. So in particular, I want to bring the Catholic tradition into conversation with those thinkers. Yeah, and just to build off of that, we are heavily influenced, especially the young people in uh, in in high schools, I I taught high school myself for five years, and uh, postmodern experientialism, uh, this this kind of uh, kind of blase relativism, subjectivism, this humanistic emp- uh, epistemology, it, it's it's permeating the culture, and fundamental principles that I've noticed just simply aren't there in the culture anymore that you and I took for granted growing up, such as first yeah. principles of logic. It, it, right. It, it's a first principle, first of all, so you don't have to actually reason to it. It's inherently known. But at the same time, it does have to be articulated that you and I may recognize it and then utilize it. Uh, th- those principles no longer exist. So with axioms like my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, I, on the one hand, I, I, I really want to say, oh, yeah, this, that, that, that's just bad logic and bad metaphysics. But it's, it's a little beyond that. Like we're talking about the formation of intellects as they're coming out. Right, and there, it, it is very problematic, as Pope Benedict pointed out in, in a homily just before he was he was elected pope. He said, "We're living in a dictatorship, dictatorship of, of relativism." relativism. Yeah, and, and and that's so problematic because if if there is no such thing as a truth, we have nothing in common with other people, and certainly there can't be a saving truth. And so, what we need is to first establish that there is such a thing as a truth that human beings can know it, and that human beings should, should act on that truth in order to attain happiness. And, and that's the principles of, of the realistic tradition in philosophy that started ultimately with Plato and was developed by Aristotle, but reaches its high point in the thought of Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. uh, in the 13th century. And he, of course, has been honored by the Church ever since as being one of the philosophical guiding lights that we should look to, because he has such a, a clear perspective and and clear arguments to refute all of these errors and point us to the truth in all these things. James, I'm going to take a gamble here because today is the feast day of St. Albert the Great, and very few people recognized Thomas Aquinas' genius prior to the great roar that he let out that shook the world, especially in his Summa. Uh, So tell us about how Albert the Great's systematic thought, especially in terms of him seeing the intersection between the natural sciences and theological revelation. Uh, talk, talk to us about how Albert kind of pioneered this real way of viewing the sciences. 
Yeah, well, I'm, I have to apologize, but I'm actually, I don't know that much about Albert myself. He's not somebody um, that I've done much focus in on. But w- what we do see with Albert is the emergence of the importance of the study of nature in the 13th century. Mm-hmm. So prior to Albert, the Christian philosophical tradition had primarily been Platonic. Right. And that meaning is based on Plato, who was in the 4th century BC. Plato's philosophy was very amenable to the Christian worldview, because Plato said that reality is a transcendent, unchanging truth, and that in some way we have to live ascetically in order to prepare ourselves to get to that transcendent, transcending, uh, transcendent unchanging truth. Right. And so you can see how that fits into the Christian worldview, right, where, mm-hmm. where heaven is the true reality, and we're in via here on earth, and we want to get back to heaven. Um, and so the Augustinian tradition, which picked up Platonism, always kind of en- underestimated the importance of the worldly sciences. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle, whose works had largely been lost to w- the Western culture um, after, the, um, after the, 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 um, the, the fall of the Roman Empire, he was rediscovered in the 11th and 12th centuries, and he began to be tr- uh, translated again. And with the translation, people began to realize Aristotle's primary difference from Aristotle, sorry, Aristotle's primary difference from Plato, Plato. was that Aristotle wanted to emphasize that this is the real world we live in. Right. That the transcendent world isn't our focus, but this is the world we live in. Exactly. This is beautifully, beautifully pictured by Raphael in his famous <laughs> painting, The School of Athens, where Plato's pointing decisively to the sky and Aristotle's pointing decisively to the ground. In right. fact, he so, has his hand, it's not so much just a point, the way Aristotle's doing it is he has his hand uh, open, he has his palm open, and he's facing the ground, almost to say, no, we ought to be grounded in that which we can apprehend so that we can contemplate the transcendent. Yeah, yes, and that's and that's what Aristotle's reply to systematically to Plato is that what we first have to do is get this world right, and mm-hmm. if we get this world right, then we can do that. Where Plato just you know, Plato wrote the Republic, which is a four hundred page book about political philosophy, mm-hmm. and at the end of it, he has Socrates say. Well, whether or not we can actually uh, build this society is irrelevant. Right. And, and at the beginning of his politics, Aristotle says, no, what we want to do is to build a society that we can actually live in. Right. So that, that's the fundamental schism between them. And so when Aristotle was rediscovered in the 12th century, it began to be translated back into Latin, and it awakened um, people to the importance of worldly sciences again, but in particular this was relevant for the Dominican order, because the, the, the Dominican order had been founded by St. Dominic to preach to the Albigensian heretics. Mm-hmm. And the Albigensian heretics were people who thought that um, there was essentially two gods, a good god of spirit and a bad god of matter. So they, they said the material world was bad. Well, the problem with that is that if the material world is bad, the idea of sacraments as concrete material signs of grace became impossible. And if sacraments were impossible, then you didn't need the church. Right. And so 
starting from a metaphysical denigration of the material world, they're led into profound heresies and a rejection of the entire Christian tradition. Which is, and so, so I'm going to have to uh, pause you there, James, the music oh, just hit, okay. but we're going to continue the conversation on the other side of the break. And I, I want to highlight how this really is a resurgence of Manichaeanism that Augustine dealt with as well. I've been talking to Dr. James Jacobs, Director of Philosophy Programs at Notre Dame Seminary in Louisiana. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Father Benedict Groeschel. I often go back to my childhood. In church, we love to be reverent, to Christ present in the Eucharist, to Christ on the cross. But I was also impressed by the reverence of my friends in the Salvation Army. They had a little band. And I used to walk past the band on Sunday morning on my way to church. And I was just a child. But I said, you know, they're trying to pray to God. They're showing reverence to God. All this was reverence. Now what do I see? I hear one irreverence after another. And week after week, month after month, the media churns out things that make fun of religion in general and make fun of Christianity in particular and particularly make fun of the Catholic Church. No class. Absolutely no class. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Conflict is an inevitable part of family life, but how we handle disagreements can make a big difference. When the temperature starts heating up, try pausing long enough to do two things. First, say a quick prayer, either silently or, if you can, out loud with the person that you're having conflict with. Ask God to strengthen you with the help you need to resolve the conflict in a respectful and loving way. Second, take a moment to reframe the disagreement. Instead of viewing it as a battle to be won, think of it as an opportunity to grow and strengthen your relationship. The goal in any conflict isn't to decide who's right or wrong, but to understand each other better and find common ground. To learn more about handling family conflicts gracefully, check out our books Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see Him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. In recent years, several states have been changing their laws on marijuana, either making it completely legal or legal for medical purposes. What do you think is the best policy? That's our question in this week's Pull of the Week. Go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to Pull of the Week to share your thoughts. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? 
Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. We're talking to Dr. James Jacobs, Director of Philosophy Programs at Notre Dame Seminary in Louisiana. So, James, we were talking earlier about the Albigensian heresy, and it really was a resurgence of the Manichaean heresy that St. Augustine had to deal with in his own life, and being yeah. a Manichaean. And we're seeing here overplays of the platonic dualism hand but plato never himself posited the notion of a good god and a bad god for him the the form the realm of the forms is itself one place because the forms are immutable and if they're immutable they're transcendent they by necessity have no no duplicity in them but they also don't have a multiplicity in them so just help us understand here that this denigration of the material is a false way to view reality. Right. And Plato, sometimes Plato himself is being misrepresented by saying that the material world is unreal. Mm-hmm. And of course, that, that's illogical. That doesn't make any sense. But what he says is that the material world is less real because it's changing. So he draws a very clear distinction between right. being and becoming. And that which is being is unchanging and eternal. Becoming is that which is ephemeral. And so therefore, because it's, it's in the process of change, it can't be the basis of truth. And if it can't be the basis of truth, it can't be the basis for our moral life. So it's not that it's inherently bad. It's just that it's less good than the eternal realm to which we should look. And I think that this is a truth that that Christians all intuitively accept, right? Because creatures are in the process of becoming. Creatures are less real than God. And so that we have to look to that eternal, unchanging truth to guide us, because that is the source of being. It's the source of truth. It's the source of goodness. Mm-hmm. And if we look to, to, the, to our world for being truth and goodness, without to that eternal source, we're going to be led astray. And that's essentially what happens in so much of modern philosophy, that they block off the path to God, and so we're left, man is left to his own resources, and it leads to the, the skepticism and the moral relativism that, that is so prominent in society today. Right, and to top all of that off, we also have this modern and then eventually the postmodern application of Cartesian dualism, which doesn't help matters. You've got Jean-Jacques Rousseau as well, who posits this kind of expressive individualism, so the real person is the self that's within and the material can be done it's it's so malleable that that it can be done with whatever one wills to bring up, bring about the self within now plato wouldn't even hold that position and aristotle certainly doesn't hold that position and the catholic faith by itself employs philosophical systems to help us understand this you know natural anthropology so help us understand that a little more so the, the question of anthropology is there's um 
uh, I title my chapter, What is Man That Thou Art Mindful of Him, citing mm-hmm. Psalm 8. And the, the key there is that man, it, you have to understand man in his fullness in order to appreciate all of his possibilities and all the res- responsibilities that follow from that. The problem with, if you start off with a bad philosophical method, you can be led to either emphasize that man is only a soul, or that man is only a body. And we have to emphasize that man is soul and body together. And so, starting with Descartes in the modern era, for various um, uh, epistemological reasons, right, he he wanted to start off his philosophy with something that could not be doubted. Mm -hmm. Because if he started off with something that couldn't be doubted, then the rest of his philosophy would be true. Well, he looks inside his own mind, and he says, well, the one thing I can't doubt at all is is my own existence. And that's the famous, I think, therefore I am. But then, from that conclusion... Actually, from that premise, he draws a conclusion that he is therefore only a mind. He's mm-hmm. not his body at all. Right. And then that sets it. There, there is in philosophy a terrible inertia. And what I mean by that is that you just comment upon the previous philosopher. And so what happens frequently is you get philosophers who are going further and further down a dead-end road, and they refuse to go back to the first mistake and start all over again. They just want to continue commenting upon it. So once Descartes sets up his dualism and says that, well, I am my mind, I'm not my body, John Locke comes along and says, well, I'm not even my mind. I'm just the the flow of consciousness. So that becomes the way he defines person. So he he introduces this new idea that the person is just the flow of consciousness. And the flow of consciousness is completely separated from his body. The flow of consciousness is separated from his mind. Well, this is what takes off in the modern realm, where I am simply my consciousness of the world, and there's nothing to tie me to it. You had mentioned Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and Rousseau's famous for having, for saying that any social structure is in some way impeding my freedom. That's right. So he says that what we have to do is to recover ultimate freedom by rejecting every social structure, which means not only the political realm, but also family. He sees the family as being one of the primary ways that a person is impeded from being free. So you add those two things together, I am just my consciousness, and I can't be tied to any social order at all. Um, and you have this the situation that that you referred to as expressive individualism, and I, I believe that term comes from Charles Taylor, who's a yes. contemporary Catholic philosopher. But what he means by that is that the whole purpose of life is we have this phrase that the younger people use: "You do you." Right. Right. And and that's what expressive individualism is. There are no rules, and you just. Do what you think is right for you. Well, if that's the case, we've completely destroyed society. We've completely destroyed truth because, and we've de- de- destroyed, uh, completely destroyed happiness because, in order for de- for man to be happy, we have to grow in wisdom and love. But mm-hmm. to grow in wisdom and love requires that you and I work together to find the truth, right. and you and I work together to develop friendships and develop families and develop societies, political societies, and that if we have nothing in common, we can't grow in wisdom, we can't grow in love. And so all this does, all in- expressive individualism does, is guarantee that people will be miserable. That's right. And that that basically explains what is going on in so much of our world today. Yeah. If I may uh, 
harken back to what you mentioned earlier about uh, Ratzinger and the the great sermon that doomed him to become pope, as I call it. <laughs> when he gave that great dictatorship of relativism address, I I, heard, I read that in hindsight after I became Catholic, and I, I thought to myself, "There's no way anyone heard that and thought this guy shouldn't be pope." So, but right. but that's beside the point. Uh, so he gives that address, and then about a year later, in September, so this was in April of 2005. In September of 2006, he gives the Regensburg address, and in my mind, these are. One flows from the other, and he talks about the great dehellenization that that has led now to this not just religious relativism, but overall general moral relativism, and we're seeing here the manifestation of that problem. And what you're saying, what your book is saying, is that well, we've abandoned the via antiqua, we've abandoned reason for madness. Right. Yeah. And and what you um, the, the, this idea of dehellenization, so that. What we have on the one hand, we have three ways of approaching the world, religion, philosophy, and science. Mm -hmm. And the important thing with the Hellenistic culture, which is the Greek tradition that we get from Plato and Aristotle that became the backbone of the Catholic philosophical tradition, is that philosophy acts as a bridge tying faith to science, so that science tells us how the world happens, how the world functions, what, how things in the world change. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell us why they change or what we should do about it. Mm-hmm. And so if you separate science from philosophy, you get this idea that, well, if we can do it, we should do it. And that science becomes completely uh, uh, isolated from any moral criteria. On the other hand, you have religion. And religion addresses the great important questions of where do I come from, what is the meaning of life, how mm-hmm. should I act, and that these are the same questions philosophy addresses, but they address them in different ways. So f- religion addresses that by giving us a revelation from God that we accept on faith. Mm-hmm. Philosophy addresses the same question from the perspective of reason. And the important thing there is that it's the philosophy that allows us to bring into conversation people from outside of our religion. Right, and so right. philosophy allows us to find the objective bases for these things that are also accepted as religious truths. And these are things like, you know, thou shalt not kill, right? I, I can quote scripture on mm-hmm. that, but I can also prove to you that that's wrong. Right. These are things it, like the, the human being has dignity. Well, I, I can say that man is made in the image and likeness of God and believe that on faith, mm-hmm. but I can also prove that to you and use that as a basis for respecting human rights. Right. Well, when religion, because of dehellenization, right, philosophy gets eliminated from the process, so religion becomes purely an aspect of faith, mm-hmm. and that this is really well presented in the, the Protestant tradition who says it's by faith alone, yeah. and that religion, ha- excuse me, reason has nothing to do with it. Well, if that becomes the basis the sole basis for discussing these these profound, important human truths, then it, it, there's no way for people to bring it into discussion with one right, another. Right, exactly. Because... And so dehellenization leads to a, a radical fundamentalism, both in religion and in science. And that this is most clearly seen or witnessed today in this supposed battle between religion and science, mm-hmm. where the, the, the polls tell us that the greatest number of young people who leave the faith are leaving because there's a supposed conflict between religion and science. 
But that only happens if you have fundamentalistic religion and fundamentalistic science. Mm -hmm. If you have philosophy as the bridge between the two, that's where the two find a meeting point. And that's why Pope Benedict correctly saw that the the process of dehellenization wasn't just a concern to the Catholic faith, it was a concern to the whole world, because we have to find a way that we can talk to each other. We can't isolate science from morality. We can't isolate the fundamental truths about the meaning of life from from rational discussion. And so philosophy plays that critical role in bringing those two together. And, and James, just to build upon that, one of the great academic problems that came about is if religion is a matter of my own interpretation, then what von Hanek and Boltmann did in the, in the 18th century in de-divinizing, de-mysticizing Christianity, treating the scriptures with a purely suspicious historical critical perspective, it, it's, a, it's a rationalist take on the scriptures. It's, it's a willful rationalist take on the scriptures. It's an application of Clifford's principles of well, you know, we can't prove empirically the divine, but we can assess this book as if it were purely a historical text. Now, we're coming up on a hard break here, but we're going to continue this conversation with you, James, and we're going to round off uh, kind of the solution to how all of us ought to participate in philosophical inquiry in our own ways. Talking to Dr. James Jacobs, Director of Philosophy Programs at Notre Dame Seminary in Louisiana. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic Healthcare Alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health sharing option. Curo's Christ centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. And now, the EWTN Family Prayer with Father Joseph. 
Family, a prayer that we pray together is a powerful prayer. So please pray together with me our EWTN family prayer. Today we pray for those who are suffering with Parkinson's disease. Lord Jesus Christ, consolation of the afflicted, you are our refuge. We pray for those who are suffering the effects of Parkinson's disease. As they lose their physical strength and abilities, increase their spiritual strength and abilities. Renew their inner spirit day after day, and through their share in your sufferings, give the grace of conversion to sinners. And their weakness, reveal your strength. Give peace and joy to those who care for them. Amen. What are some major offenses against the Eighth Commandment? The Catholic Catechism states that false witness, that is, lying in court, and perjury, which is lying under oath, are especially grave sins because they are stated publicly. Such false statements contribute to the condemnation of the innocent and the exoneration of the guilty or the increased sentence of the accused. If we assume the moral fault of another without sufficient evidence, we commit the sin of rash judgment. We offend by the sin of detraction when we reveal the faults of another without an objectively valid reason to someone who did not know them. Calumny is the sin of lying about another person, thereby harming their reputation and contributing to occasions of false judgments regarding them. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta. We're re- finishing off this final segment of the second hour, talking to Dr. James Jacobs about viewing philosophy from a Catholic tradition. His book, Seat of Wisdom, An Introduction to Philosophy in the Catholic Tradition, is, I sincerely believe, one of those books that every Catholic ought to read at least once in their life to get a cursory overview of what systematic philosophy looks like and how how to think about the world. Now, James, I was telling you earlier about some of the ways in which relativism is rearing its ugly head. And if we don't know how to spot it, we won't recognize it when it is there. I'll give you an example. Some some time ago, actually, my bride and I were watching this uh, program and there was this couple undergoing marriage therapy. And so the therapist trains them to talk to each other in this way, to speak my truth and then to say it. And... (laughs) And and right. yeah, as, as soon as my bride and I heard that, both of us looked at each other. Relativism, you know, it, 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 it starts showing itself in all these tiny ways. When students say things like hashtag you do you or my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. What we don't see, and we've lost the capacity of logical conclusions, but what we don't see is that all of this inadvertently leads to moral entropy in society. We're not just talking about degradation. If we don't reclaim an objective, ethical, moral order in society, it will denigrate to entropy. So tell us a little about that. So, yeah, the... In order to, um, when we undertake any action, we have to have some ultimate goal in mind. And so, 
this is the philosophers say that in in um, practical matters the final end is the first principle and what they mean mm-hmm. by that is when I'm thinking about doing something I have to have a final end in mind and then that motivates all the other choices so say for example I have a philosophy conference this weekend in Houston and so what I need to do is figure out how I'm going to get to Houston so I decide well I want to fly and so because I want to fly I get on the internet and buy an airplane ticket right but it's that final end of getting to Houston for the conference that motivates everything else and so what we have to know what people have to be consciously aware of is where is their life headed and that this is that that simple traditional philosophical uh, question of what is the meaning of life Mm -hmm. and Aristotle says everything we do in the course of the day is motivated by something if I'm hungry I eat if I want to get fit I exercise if I want to uh, grow together with God I go to prayer but everything I do is motivated by something but there has to be some supreme good because if there's no supreme good motivating me then there's no reason why I did any any of those things that's right and he says he says very quickly that obviously this would have a great impact on life if you know what the supreme good is if you don't and when we come upon that text with the seminarians, I always point out that this is the pastoral problem that we're living in. Most mm. people in, the, in this world, and I don't think it's people in the pews, but certainly people in the world, have no reason why they live. And so what happens is they end up living a kind of vicious cycle where they, they make money on the weekend so they can enjoy themselves, excuse me, they make money during the week so they can enjoy themselves on the weekend. And then they go back to make more money so right. they can enjoy themselves. And they go back. And that's a, just a completely vicious circle where there's no point to anything they do. And so if they can understand how that's so empty, then they can figure out, well, why is it that human beings live? And that, again, we well, what it, does it mean to be a human being? A human being is somebody who's rational. And because he's rational, he can grow in knowledge of truth, and ultimately the highest truth is wisdom. And because a human being is rational, he also has the ability to love. Animals act on instinct. Human beings can order their loves so that we love the highest thing. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately what we want to do is to know the highest truth and love the highest good. And that both Plato and Aristotle would have said that, even though they weren't Christians. But they had the the answer right, they just lacked the revelation of the Christian God. This is what, what we have completely now in the tradition, is that revelation tells us that our goal is union with God, philosophy tells us that we want to grow in wisdom and love, which ultimately leads to God. And that gives everything we do in our life some meaning. Right. And that Either you lead a meaningless life, or your your life has intrinsic meaning because it's ordered to something. It's interesting. What, what, there's a there's what they call a, a, a performative contradiction involved with relativism, saying that if no choice of mine is better or worse, right? If, mm-hmm. if I completely determine whether something is good or bad then no choice of mine is either inherently good or bad. That's right. But if no choice of mine is ever inherently good or bad, then there's no reason for anything I do. Right, nothing right? matters. When you, yeah, when you choose, you want to choose that which is true. You want to choose that which is good. But under relativism, choices don't matter at all. And this is why I think the, the French existentialists, who were popular in the mid-20th century, um, they got the right idea. Jean-Paul Sartre said, life mm-hmm. is absurd. <laughs> and Albert Camus said, the only real philosophical question is, why not commit suicide? Right, right. Right. So that if, if everything I do is completely pointless, then life is absurd, and 
suicide seems to be the only solution. The alternative to that is to understand that there really is an order in the world and that man has the capacity to know this by reason and we can live it out in our lives by an ethical by our ethical choices and so again this is where philosophy is necessary to ground us in these truths completely and you're completely right in saying that and perhaps that's one of the most heartbreaking things even if you and I were to go on social media right now there's very little applied an applied notion of logic here to understand that relativism is an exercise in applied nihilism it 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 is going yeah. to lead to that in, inevitable conclusion now i want to backtrack a little to what you said earlier that we are made for a final end and everything within us is drawn to that cs lewis in mere christianity talks about how if i find within myself an appetite ordered towards something that is not of this world i must therefore conclude that i'm made for something beyond this world and aristotelian philosophy will tell us that our intellect is made for truth our will is made for this kind of universal good and yet the the appetite of the intellect and the will for truth and goodness is seemingly infinite which tells us we were probably made for an infinite reality so on a natural level just help us understand that more every human person is called to this Right. So this this simply emerges from if you if you have the right idea of human nature. Now, of course, that that's a critical premise because a lot of people today, as we hinted at before, we talked about how some people reduce man just to his soul, mm -hmm. and it spins off into um, I I, j I can define myself. The other very prominent, especially among professional philosophers, the position is I'm just a pile of atoms. Right. And that if I'm just a pile of atoms, the only thing that matters for me is essentially survival. Right. And that if the only thing that matters to me is survival, then, then there is no morality. And that Thomas Hobbes' philosophy mm -hmm. is a good illustration of that. The empiricist and, um, premise. Yeah. And, and that's what scientifically influenced philosophers will argue today, in one form or another. Um, now, the difference is that I, I am not just my soul. I'm not just my body. I am a soul and body together. Mm -hmm. And the soul, it, first off, it gives me the power of life. And that separates me from all the non-living things. Because where non-living things only react to the environment, I can grow in my own, by, by my own powers. Mm -hmm. But in addition... I, I, human beings are animals, and so we have hearing, taste, touch. We can, we can become aware of the world through our senses, but animals only react to the world based upon instinct. Right. So they see something and they react, and that's why uh, you, know, you, can, you can put down a fake, like a, a plastic snake or a statue of something, and an animal will react as if it were real because they can't make that distinction between how something appears and what something is. Mm -hmm. And this is where human beings are different. We're rational animals. And because we're rational animals, we can look at the world and judge the truth of it. And that includes looking at all the things I desire in the world and judging the true good. So that I have this disposition that, as rational, I want to know. Aristotle begins his famous book, The Metaphysics, all men by nature desire to know. Mm -hmm. What do we want to know? We want to know why. You think of a child who's constantly asking, why this, why that? Well, because we want to know why, because once I know why something is happening, I understand how the world is functioning. And so I want to know why, but why what, ultimately? Why everything? Mm. So there has to be some highest cause. And that to know simply that there is a highest cause 
leaves me cold. Aquinas says this explicitly. To know merely that there is a God isn't enough. I have to know God himself. Amen. And so this is what motivates me to move from philosophy, where I know I can prove that there's a God in, in philosophy, but I can't know who he is, that he's the triune God of Jesus Christ. Right. In order to know that, I have to then go into faith, because grace perfects nature, mm-hmm. and faith perfects philosophy. Now, that's from the perspective of knowledge. Simultaneously, at the same time, where where Aristotle began with all men desire to know, Augustine begins his confessions with, our hearts are restless yep. till they rest in thee. Yep. And so the, human beings want a good to satiate us. Right. And St. And Augustine will define evil as loving something that you can lose against your will. And what he means by that is that if you love anything that can change then you might still love it, but if it changes, you've lost it. Mm-hmm. So I might love my automobile, but it could be destroyed. I might love my dog, but she could die. So you have to love something that can't change. And, of course, that would be God. God alone is the creator. All creation is changing. So we have to love God, because although it's good to, to love other things in the right way, only God completely sat- satisfies us, which is why... Our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. And Augustine's Confessions is a wonderful exploration of somebody who kept trying to love things in order to find satisfaction. And when he finally finds God, it's it's this wonderful revelation. And he has this this, uh, famous statement where he says, Late have I I loved thee, O beauty, beauty, ever ancient and ever new. And I looked outside, you weren't there. I looked inside, you weren't there, but you were above me at all times. And so that, that the, the Augustinian focus on love brings the, uh, together with the uh, Aristotelian focus on knowledge is exactly what St. Thomas Aquinas does in his understanding of human nature, that we need both of these. Yeah. And James, I think that's one of the things that's greatly lost in society, that as if a faith in God is going to rob me of all things that are true and good, when in reality, gratia non non tolit naturam, it doesn't destroy or do away with nature. It said perfected, it perfects nature, as you mentioned. God created us this way, and he wants to bring us to the fulfillment of all desire in the beatific vision, and we get foretastes of that here on earth, provided we are living in the order of objective truth and goodness. Right, and you do have to you do have to prepare yourself to receive grace, right? Mm-hmm. So that that the reason why we we have to uh, try and develop wisdom here, earthly wisdom, and the reason why we have to develop earthly love is because that disposes the soul to the reception of grace. Because Aquinas has a principle that he recites in any number of cases, but it's that which is received is received according to the mode, mode of the, the knower. Yeah. Yeah, and and so that you know, an animal sees the world, but but receives the world according to its animal sense instincts. I see the world, and I receive the world according to rationality. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is true with the reception of grace, right? That yep. God offers grace to everybody, but some people, because they've grown in virtue, because they've grown in wisdom, because they've grown in love, are better disposed to receive that gift of grace and are more adept at at cooperating with it. Whereas somebody who hasn't perfected their human nature, grace perfects nature, if you haven't perfected your nature, grace will be very difficult for you to receive. Right. 
James, we could continue this for hours. It's been a joy talking to you. I've been talking to Dr. James Jacobs, Director of Philosophy Programs at Notre Dame Seminary in Louisiana. Stay tuned as we round off the second hour. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. The American Medical Association says informed consent to medical treatment is a fundamental right established in both medical ethics and U.S. law. Patients have the right to receive information and ask questions about recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions about care. When speaking with a patient regarding different procedures and care options, a physician must give accurate information about the diagnosis, treatment, benefits, and risk, and allow the patient to ask questions. Ensure the patient understands the consequences of the treatment alternatives and decide if the patient is capable of making decisions with a sound mind. Document the informed consent conversation and the patient's or their healthcare agent's treatment decision. It is vital to have a healthcare agent who is aware of all your wishes, values, and medical information so that your wishes are respected in the event you are not able to make these decisions at some point. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. Two of the hardest words to say in the English language. I'm sorry. I'll ask couples, when was the last time you said I'm sorry? Oh, uh, I think it was our wedding rehearsal dinner. I, I spilled some coffee on her lap. I said, hey, sorry about that. Why is I'm sorry so hard to say? What does it mean to you? Are you saying you're a failure? Are you saying I'm wrong? Are you saying if I say I'm sorry, I'm admitting it's all my fault? I'm sorry are two of the softest words in a relationship in the English language. I'm sorry. Very hard to say, very easy on relationships. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter rounding off the second hour of today's program. I want to invite all of you to take a listen to the program that we had today, the interviews. They all pertain to the theme of reason cooperating with the faith. Memorizing the creed, our system of beliefs, does not mean we understand it. We have an obligation to keep seeking understanding for the faith that has been given to us every day for the rest of our lives, all of us. Something as simple as reading the Catechism daily, reading the Scriptures daily, but also anywhere from listening to lectures, taking courses, whatever the mode of the knower is, whatever the mode of learning most appeals to you is. But what we all need to understand is that rigorous rational analysis is not antithetical to the faith. If anything, it is complementary to the faith. This is the work of us seeking understanding for our faith, the intellectus fide. And this is the call for all of us. Until next time, I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. 
to listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.